Welcome to Connecting Citizens to Science, a podcast from the Liverpool School of Tropical Medicine about engaging communities in global health research. I'm Kim Ozano. And I'm B. Eggard, and throughout this series, we'll be talking to researchers from around the world, exploring how they connect with people to address a range of challenges in global health. Hello, listeners, and welcome back to the Connecting Citizens to Science podcast. This month's series is all about climate change and health. And in this week's episode, we will focus on climate change and its impacts on malaria specifically. Our guests will be discussing the effects of floods from extreme weather events on malaria and how researchers are working with governments and NGOs to collect and analyze GIS data for environmental applications and decision-making. My co-host with me today is AJ. AJ, how are you today? And tell us a bit about yourself. Hi, Kim. Um, So listeners, my name is Ajay Bhave. I am the Global Challenges Research Fellow at Newcastle University. Uh, I'm an environmental scientist working on climate change risks, impacts and adaptation, and how to build resilience in water systems, especially in the global south. I'm particularly interested in climate services and how we can use scenarios and decision-making approaches to help us and communities and stakeholders take adaptation decisions under uncertainty. Thanks, AJ. Great to hear from you again. And on to meeting our guests, Clinton and Remy. Welcome to the podcast. Uh, Clinton, let's start with you. Welcome and tell us a bit about yourself. Thanks, Kim. I'm Clinton Golgosa. A marine based researcher currently doing my master's in GIS, so that's Geographical Information Systems at Sheffield Hallam University. So I'm a researcher who's, who is affiliated with the Malawi River Bokum Trust, and my current activities as a special analyst involve revealing the past, present, and future environmental changes particularly in southern Malawi. So this is a highly vulnerable and rapidly transforming region. And subsequently, I develop special tools and map-based resources to advance the understanding of environmental drivers of vector-borne diseases, whose transmission is strongly influenced by the environment. So that includes schistosomiasis and malaria. And basically, my work aims at providing a better understanding of the impact of human-induced environmental change. I enjoy exploring this relationship between environmental factors and how they influence the vector-borne diseases. And so basically, I inspire people about human-induced climate change and public health using map-based and data-driven resources. That's a wonderful explanation. And it's really interesting that you look past, present and future. Could you tell us a little bit about uh, how far in the past and how you would look in the future? I'll be looking at data starting from uh, the 90s. So that's from the 1990s up to the current time. So that's the 2000s, so that's a 30-year period. So it'll be interesting to see how the environment has changed and um, how this has affected the current disease morbidity. And also it'll be interesting to see how the, as the climate is changing, how the diseases will be changing. Thanks very much. And it's it's good to hear that this work is taking place in Malawi. And we'll explore that in a little bit uh, more in a moment. But before we go there, Remy, welcome. Tell us about yourself. 
Thank you, Kim. Hi, everyone. Uh, I'm Remy. I'm a PhD student at the Liverpool School of Tropical Medicine, and my work focuses on malaria epidemiology. And uh, just like Clinton, I focus a lot on climatological and, and environmental drivers. And uh, more recently, I've really taken uh, an interest in how climate change affects our health. And as part of that, I've gotten some funding which has allowed me to look at uh, a specific area in Malawi, Chikwawa district around the Shiri River, which is a low-lying area where often flooding occurs. And although this has affected a lot of people and there's been some mention of how it's affected potentially malaria in the area, uh, this has not actually been quantified. So my study tries to look at that a bit more specifically and helps us understand how flooding actually affects uh, malaria, which is something we'll, uh, that will become a lot more uh, relevant in the future, because one of the first impacts of climate change will be an increase in extreme weather events like flooding. Um, so this is something uh, that will become increasingly important in the future. So it's really something we need to understand better. Thanks very much. It's really interesting how climate change means that we have a moving target and that the environment is changing so fast that researchers uh, really have to start thinking about the future. Just to understand the context a bit more, Remy, tell us how citizens and, and people and communities have been embedded in the research so far. Um, yeah, so I would say, first of all, that this study wouldn't exi exist without me visiting Malawi and having some conversations with the people there. So on my f first trip to the area, um, that's when it, it was actually a month after Cyclone Idai in 2019, and there was still very much among the the clinic staff there about how it's affected malaria cases, as well as how it's affected the wider areas. Obviously, people observe a lot themselves uh, before we we quantify it, um, and that really like helps you decide what what's an important topic to research. Um, and then you you start researching it a bit further, and you realize. Oh, there's actually not a lot of literature on this. Um, and in this case, yeah, it, it was, you know, bridges were impassable, roads were impassable for a little while before we got there. Um, you know, p populations were displaced and we heard some observations from the public health officer there as well. So we work with Lovo Sugar in Malawi. So they own a big sugar plantation, basically. So there's irrigation in that area, which is an important sort of aspect to, to take into consideration when you think about malaria transmission, because it relies on mosquitoes being able to breed in water. And then when you think about flooding, how is that going to affect that dynamic? Um, and some of the observations they made early on was, well, you know, there's, there's good and bad to those different environments, because during the flooding, actually, uh, because it's linked to the Shiri River, the area drained quicker than some other of the surrounding areas. So th this is going to be really interesting dynamic to, to look into a bit further and quite a complex one. Thanks very much. That that gives us a good start. Can I just ask you, you talked about kind of citizens and the sugar plantations, a public health officer doing observations. How did they uh, communicate that information to you? Um, so we were there for on that trip for probably a week and we visited different clinics and basically yeah, collected some of the malaria data already. And we uh, one of the other goals we had was uh, a bit more related to sort of the spatial aspect of, of this because 
one of the the aspects that we're interested in is you know how far does the flooding extend or how is malaria distributed over space um, and what you need for that is uh, actually locations of villages which may sound like a really simple thing but often these communities aren't mapped um, so you wouldn't know where they are so in the laboratory books for example people report their address they basically write down the name of a village or the name of a community and you won't be really be able to know where exactly that is without someone pointing you to that location. So the only way to get that really is by talking to people in the local area. This this work is really uh, being continued by uh, two of my colleagues in Malawi, as I, I hadn't been able to visit as much during COVID. So that that's uh, Matawanji and Chifuniro Baluwa. And uh, they have been uh, sort of doing this participatory mapping exercise where we sort of prep prepared uh, some of the base maps together. So we use uh, software for this, which is open source. It's called QGIS. Clinton knows it well. <laughs> and um, yeah, so you can sort of have a background map like you would in Google Maps. You know, we're basically making the most of, of people's knowledge there. So uh, both Rasheen and Chifunero have been sitting down with people at the clinic and uh, basically, you know, by identifying certain, you know, easily recognizable points, they can work out where different uh, villages or communities are actually located. Thank you very much. That helps us really understand how you've been connecting with people and participatory mapping we covered in series one as well in Bangladesh. So it's good to, to see that. And Clinton, this moves uh, very smoothly onto the work that you've done. But also, Clinton, you are from Malawi and this is the context. So perhaps you could help us understand the Malawi context a little bit more and um how what you need to consider when you want to connect with communities and people in Malawi? Thanks, Kim. It's a great question. So climate change and environmental degradation has affected vulnerable communities as we know it. And in Malawi, erratic rains followed by floods and longer dry spells are causing significant ecological changes and also changes in the way humans use land and water resources. So for instance, at the local level, changes in the quality and levels of surface water as a result of floods and droughts are causing a shift in the suitability of habitats for host smells and malaria mosquitoes. And also forcing farmers and uh, the fishing community to expand into these vector habitats. So this process often leads to enhanced transmission and ultimately disease escalation. For instance, it, it has been shown that in Malawi, schistosomiasis is widespread in communities where fishing, farming and uh, white swimming is dominant. So my interest is in uncovering the influence of the environmental and climate changes on the transmission of these diseases. And schistosomiasis is a neglected tropical disease that affects nearly half of the malaria population. That's according to the World Health Organization. And telling me special patterns in Schistomiasis transmission risk are mainly driven by the environmental conditions. So, 
as the environment changes due to human activities, there is a need to better understand how this has resulted in or will result in a change in suitable habitat for schistosomiasis intermediate host snails. Just to provide a brief, brief background of my project, so I will be using GIS-based tools, mainly open access tools. Remy uh, has mentioned QGIS, which is a very powerful, freely available GIS software. So I'll be using GIS methods to map risk for schistosomiasis in southern Malawi. As mentioned earlier, this is a very vulnerable and um, highly endemic region in southern Malawi. So I'll be employing GIS and remote resistance tools and data sets to produce maps of malaria risk along Shire River and uh, in Rawashire. So that's Chikwawa, Bangula wetlands, and uh, Nsaji. And um, I do hope that the knowledge of the impact of environmental change will encourage more vigilant climate action and surveillance in the highly impacted areas. And uh, more importantly, guide the allocation of limited resources for combating schistosomiasis and climate change in this particular region. Thanks very much. It sounds very interesting. And thank you for explaining schistosomiasis for us as well. Um, it sounds like you're generating new knowledge for the future and to, to take some action there. I'll hand over to AJ to explore that a little bit more. Yes, knowledge is the key word when it comes to understanding climate change. And often in Africa, um, climate models and climate information issues emerge uh, because we don't really have a good understanding of the climate processes and the, and the potential future changes. But at the same time, understanding how the climate is changing uh, and could change in the future is important information that has to be linked with local knowledge. Uh, so how did you combine climate information with local knowledge to inform your study design? Great question. So, yeah, as mentioned earlier, I'll be exploring this interesting relationship between uh, human-induced environmental change, so that includes land use and land cover change, and how this influences the patterns of um, vegetable diseases. So as you have mentioned, given that the uh, environmental factors, in particular rainfall and uh, temperature, do affect patterns in the transmission of these diseases, it will be interesting to uncover how the, the environmental change in Malawi has um, impacted human lives and livelihoods. So just recently in Malawi we have uh, experienced floods, a series of floods in February and May. So we had tropical storm Anna, which seriously affected lives and livelihoods. So it'll be interesting to see how um, these climate disasters or vicissitudes affect uh, lives as well as um, public health. Remy, would you also like to talk a bit about... Yes, please. Um, uh, yeah, I was just going to ask Clinton uh, about this because I know that you have been mapping some of the recent flooding, haven't you? 
and there, I think there's been some interest from the was it the Ministry of Health or just uh, MLW? Just maybe if you want to explain a bit more about how sort of keeping track of the extent of flooding can help the the local population by using open access data. Yeah, thanks, Jeremy. That's quite an interesting issue. So, uh, recently, I took it upon myself to produce maps of flood risk in the Rawashire, soon after Malawi experienced Tropical Storm Anna. So, my interest was in uh, using freely available humanitarian data and uh, tools to see how we can understand and assess the flood situation in Rawashire. So, I produced maps showing the flood extent and um, communities which have been affected by the floods. So that's Chikwawa, Bangula, and Sanje. And the maps were met with positive reviews by the directors at Malawi River Bokum Trust and the Minister of Health. And it was interesting to see that we had several discussions and it became apparent that these two might be helpful in providing uh, a better understanding to decision makers. So the Minister of Health were interested to derive information regarding how many facilities have been affected, how many communities cannot access these uh, damaged healthcare facilities. So it's interesting to see that using open access tools and humanitarian data, we can inform decision makers and um, make a positive change to vulnerable communities and those being affected by climate change. That is very interesting, Clinton. Um, it is interesting that you mentioned barriers. So when you have such barriers, how do you respond to them uh, and what more could be done to minimize them? Maybe starting with Clinton. Right, thank you. So I'll just first highlight some of the barriers and um, Remy will then later add on how these barriers can be dealt with because um, our work do overlap so it will be interesting to to talk about that. So the first barrier that is quite apparent in Malawi is financial constraint. Malawi is a low income country and because of these financial resources to fight vector borne diseases and climate change tend to be inadequate and mostly unavailable. So local researchers have to rely on sourcing plants from the global waste and oftentimes this can lead to another challenge which is the mismatch between funder priorities and local stakeholders needs. One of the other challenging issues in Malawi is data access completeness and currency. And Remy can relate to this. So getting complete up-to-date fan-scale environmental data as well as public health data for Malawi is quite difficult because um, most of the data for Malawi at local level is not open source and in digital form. So that means researchers have to go through several hurdles just to access the data. And Remy, could you yeah, I think that's definitely a barrier, especially when it comes to flooding. So um, the reason that I can do this study on flooding is because of the collaboration we have with Alovo Sugar. 
um, because they've provided us with access to their clinics and basically access to daily data. And as you can imagine, with flooding, this is something that happens very suddenly. And, you know, every day the flooding is extent will be different. Whereas sort of the routinely collected data that is available through more official, um, like through the Ministry of Health, uh, is at the monthly level. And you won't be able to see the, the effect of the flood that clearly, and you certainly won't be able to tell exactly which areas were affected because it's just reported at the facility level. Um, so in this study, I've been lucky to work with an agricultural company in another aspect is that they actually collect quite a lot of extra information on sort of the climate variables. So they, for example, they have their own weather station. So they collect uh, rainfall temperature data, but also more uh, specific information like soil permeability and other things like that, that can really help inform, you know, what is really going on, sort of really capture those dynamics. In terms of barriers, there's a certain vulnerability in Malawi in terms of not having the financial flexibility to respond to sudden impacts like uh, extreme weather events, which are very costly. And I think it's also important to point out that, you know, climate change is human driven, mostly driven by populations in the West. And now people that have not contributed that much to this problem will probably be facing the biggest burden and not only facing uh, the burden in terms of climate change, but on top of that, sort of the additional consequences in infectious disease, epidemiology, sort of exacerbating problems that were already there. You know, it's very not very much researched either. So like I said before, we don't know exactly how flooding affects malaria. The population that is exposed to flooding is expected to increase by 2030. Um, if you look at all studies, there's there's been a few reviews. So one of the reviews by Colson et al. said that, you know, 18 out of 61 studies that have looked at malaria and flooding, uh, so that's 30% of, of studies that have focused on uh, on Africa like the whole continent. Um, so there's 16 studies for the whole continent on malaria and flooding. And out of those, there's actually only been five that have incorporated some sort of rigorous statistical uh, methodology. So they have, you know, sort of a baseline or a, a control group involved as well. So not just some observations. Yeah, that was sort of reported by uh, Sur et al. Yeah, that, that that's a massive problem. It's really not researched and it, this is going to affect more and more people in the future. And we, there's basically no mitigation strategy in place either. Because we work with an agricultural company, I find it interesting to see that there's been a little bit more work on that side of things because obviously that's another big consequence of climate change, sort of crop production and that sort of vulnerability to, to basically hunger. That's an, sort of an interesting intersection with infectious diseases as well because as people want to expand irrigated agriculture, will that be a good or a bad thing for malaria? That's that's quite a complex question, which I don't think has a very clear answer yet. Yeah, th there are definitely quite a few barriers <laughs> to to, be, to undertake this work still, because it is a very complex landscape that we're operating in. It's interesting how both of you have actually really uh, laid out the complexity of the issues, everything from climate change, long-term issues, to how short-term extremes like tropical cyclones coming through the Mozambique Channel towards 
uh, Malawi uh, have intensified, have increased over the last few years, especially starting with especially Cyclone Idai, and how that links, how flooding issues that are linked to also climate change in the Shere River Basin and agricultural expansion and irrigation expansion are so intrinsically linked to human health and to diseases like malaria. So really the, the question that, that sort of comes from this is, uh, given that you have explored this complexity so much, how can the results of your study be useful to create health systems in Malawi and also potentially have applications outside Malawi uh, in ways that can help uh, people and health systems be a bit more resilient to climate change? Maybe Reme, you can start with this one. Yeah, so like I said, like there's definitely a really clear scientific benefit. But as, uh, as Clinton mentioned in, before as well, what the ministry is also just interested in are very logistical things. So yeah, exactly which clinics are affected. In my case, I'll, I'll definitely be looking at sort of when as the extent of the flooding changes, how does that change the spatial spread of malaria? And also how does that change over time? Because um, there's typically a bit of a lag period um, between sort of the onset of flooding and then the actual malaria. It's, we don't fully understand, but basically heavy rainfall can make malaria worse or better um, as it either flushes out some of the breeding sites or as it creates more breeding sites, depending on sort of the interaction between the, the rainfall or the flooding and the the local environment and there's a sort of an incubation period as well as it takes a little while for the mosquito population to pick up and also takes a little while for people to get diagnosed and report to the clinic so those are things uh, yeah we need to know so that uh, when for example there is the next flooding there's already sort of a plan in place where people know okay we need to have this many bed nets available or we maybe it's better to spray or in this case probably not better to spray houses if people are displaced from their homes. So there's like quite a lot of things to think about. So yeah, my focus will really be to, to describe like how the risk changes, the malaria risk changes over time and place in response to flooding, hopefully, and also just sort of estimate, yeah, the excess burden of malaria due to flooding so that people can sort of plan accordingly. I know that the Red Cross operates in that area as well, and I've sort of had some initial contact with them and hopefully uh, I'll be able to continue that conversation to see what sort of parameters they are most interested in uh, incorporating in their action plans because um, they basically produce emergency plans of action where they assess the needs of the population after uh, an emergency so I think this is something that they'd probably be interested in because I think at the moment there's sort of a vague notion that we need to take malaria into account, but exactly how, they're not really sure because there's, there's just no data. And just to add to what Remy has said, yeah, I for one believe that exploring climate change will allow future changes in disease transmission to be uh, known or estimated. So outputs from this kind of research will provide the schistosomiasis and malaria control community with variable insights into future challenges facing their elimination efforts. So without this information, developing focused disease control and climate mitigation strategies will 
remain a challenge in Malawi, which can pose a threat to disease escalation. So the knowledge of the impact of climate change or environmental change will encourage more vigilant climate action and surveillance in these highly vulnerable and um, highly impacted areas. Um, a key emerging theme throughout these questions is the generation and the use of information. Um, so how are you planning to make sure that the information that you are generating um, and sort of creating as well uh, reaches those with the uh, ability to act on it? Interesting question. Right, so for me, I, I intend to develop Terad map-based and data-driven sources to get the message across better. So I will develop the first dashboard for Southern Malawi that communicates the environmental and climate changes as well as uh, schistosomiasis risk in the region in both English and uh, vernacular languages. And uh, using the free available open source intuitive tools I've planned to publish the results in several formats and uh, publicly available or accessible platforms. So this will be followed by a series of meetings with the decision makers at the National Schistosomiasis Control Program and the wider research community. And the goal of these meetings is to inform, get feedback, and uh, facilitate deeper dialogue among the project partners. And I believe this will create a space for policymakers to gain insight on these two critical development issues, climate change and uh, vector-borne diseases, in particular, schistosomiasis. So basically, uh, I will use targeted media channels to communicate my research findings with partners and uh, the local communities. That is excellent, uh, Clinton. Um, I, I would really look forward to seeing your dashboard someday in English and in Chicheva, perhaps. Um, thanks very much uh, for your uh, for your very interesting thoughts. Over to you, Kim. Thanks very much. I think one thing that I'd like to just understand a bit more, and I think it might link to advice for other researchers working in climate change and vector-borne diseases, is what I'm hearing is partnerships are absolutely essential. Uh, Reme, you mentioned that the research couldn't go ahead without the partnership of your agricultural partner that uh, worked within this sugar industry. And then we've heard uh, NGOs, we've heard uh, government, and it sounds like there's many different partners. Do you ever plan to bring them together? It sounds like it's a real systems thinking type need. Um, yeah, so for my... For this study in particular, we we are planning um, at the end to have sort of a stakeholder meeting um, at Alovo at the in the Chalo in Chikwawa districts. So that would basically be uh, probably in one of the clinics, and uh, would invite some of the village chiefs from the surrounding areas as well. Uh, basically, um, to, as far as the extent of the sort of affected area was, because. Yeah, it, it was their clinics that that were affected. So uh, this will be relevant information for them as well. And then, 
through uh, my supervisors, Chris Jones and Michelle Stanton. We have links with the National Malaria Control Program as well, and they have a quarterly meeting. So I'm hoping to present uh, the findings of this study there as well. Collaborations are, are definitely key and have really helped um, yeah, make this, this relevant. Otherwise, yeah, you can't, you can't operate sort of in silo. Thanks very much. Um, Clinton, I really love the idea of open source interactive tools in, in different languages so that people can use them. Do you see the, the local community accessing those tools as well or more for government? I would say there is potential for both the local communities to use the tool, given that um, most Marians would be interested to have research findings presented in their own local language. One of the key important things that Remy has mentioned is about inclusiveness and transparency. So I think inclusiveness of being open and transparent should be at the center of our actions when connecting with people and uh, local communities. When we are open and accommodating, uh, the people and local communities are able to perceive the goals and benefits of our projects on their own. And um, I think this makes them more confident to, to join hands with our efforts in improving lives and the environment because they have all the necessary information to make an informed decision. And uh, I think it also empowers them in the sense that they can point out the potential and even actual pitfalls of our proposed projects so that they can be addressed by the responsible person or people. Some excellent advice there for, for researchers. It's about inclusiveness, transparency, transparency, being accommodating and building confidence through sharing knowledge. And maybe Clinton, in the design of that open source tool, perhaps communities will be involved in that so that they, they can also understand how it, it can be more interactive and, and intuitive for, for the context. So thank you for that advice. Remy, any last bits of advice for people working in climate change and vector-borne disease? Um, yeah, I would say for me, it's been a really good journey to sort of venture out of my own discipline a little bit and learn more about climate science as well as like agricultural practice and sort of land use. I think initially there's always like some boundaries to overcome in, in terms of language use and uh, for example, I, I've had some meetings with climate scientists um, and we both were speaking about, you know, modeling um, and I meant statistical modeling and they meant mathematical modeling where it was like actual physics. Um, <laughs> so, you know, don't be deterred by, by that. It, it can be really interesting to approach something from a different angle and we need to work together to, to solve these issues. As you've noticed from our conversation today, you know, climate change, it always seemed really far away, but it's, it's, ha it's starting to happen, like it is happening. If you have visited Malawi, you will know that, yeah, the, the flooding is very regular and like, this is not just a fluke, like this is going to happen more and more. Um, so yeah, we, we basically need all hands on deck. So 
say um, in all infectious disease people don't be afraid to work with climate scientists and all climate scientists <laughs> go find yourself some public health friends <laughs> that's perfect um so you're really saying to us it's time to move out of our silo disciplines and and, and learn other disciplines and be open to that um, and, you know, I really like the fact that you've said, you know, climate change is happening now. It's not something in the future. It's, it's happening right now. And we don't have mitigation strategies that are kind of significant or enough right now. So, uh, yes, thank you for that call. And thank you uh, to, to AJ for co-hosting and, and for all your uh, wonderful research. We look forward to seeing the outputs. And thank you to our listeners. Goodbye for now. Bye. Bye, everyone. Bye, everyone. Bye.